From the Maximum Fun Network, this is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. And uh, you're about to hear a sort of different kind of Memory Palace episode. Once a year, uh, Maximum Fun, the uh, network that the Memory Palace is a part of, has a uh, convention in Lake Arrowhead, California. It's like summer camp with an open bar. I went this year for the first time, and it turned out to be extraordinarily fun. And while there, I did a live Memory Palace episode, pretty much for the first time, which also turned out to be fun. And uh, you're about to hear a story I performed um, in a different version. It's not live, at least not entirely. And it is a personal story, though certainly Memory palace in its way. One word of warning uh, before I start. Um, there is a little bit of off-colored humor, some old-school ribaldry contained uh, within the story. Special thanks to Jesse Thorne and Jordan Morris for helping out with this episode. This is The Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. I spent my 20s in Providence. I lived in a two-story tenement on the west side of the city, on the other side of the highway from downtown, and the other side of the tracks from Brown University and the fancy houses of the east side. My mom grew up in that house. Her father did too. And after my grandfather died at 86 years old, it turned out that his widow couldn't take living there anymore. She couldn't take sharing her space with the ghosts of days spent with her husband and their daughters, and with her husband's family, and of herself as a young bride that would appear in every corner, at the top of the stairs, at the sink by the window, in the empty side of the bed. So my grandmother moved out, and I moved in. I loved it. And not just because I was 23 and aimless and got to live by myself, rent-free, in this big old house. I loved the house. Growing up, it had echoed with stories, endlessly repeated at big Italian family dinners, during the tail ends of Christmases with the dying embers and some uncle conked out on the maroon velour chair. For visitors, for new audiences, the stories were stretched and embellished. For close family, they were invoked. They were compressed like Mandarin proverbs until they could be summoned by a couple of brushstrokes. Dad and the Studebaker. Mom's broken finger. Janice through the bathroom window. I loved those stories. I surely tell stories now because I loved those stories then. And despite the sheer volume and breadth of memories and anecdotes that pile up in the dusty corners of a house occupied by one family since 1914, despite the vast quantity of potential material, most of the stories, the ones in heavy rotation, were drawn from a single shelf. For several years, from the late 1930s through the end of World War II, my grandfather ran a nightclub on the banks of the Patuxet River. It started out as the Hi-Ho, and was eventually rebranded the Club Baghdad, complete with an oasis painted on the wall, and a general Casablanca, Edward Saidi vibe. They did a full review. Crooners, comedians, mid-sized big bands, showgirls, national touring acts, second-tier mob bosses. My grandfather was the MC. One night, a few of the dancers got the flu, and my grandfather called the talent agency up in Boston for some fill-in showgirls. One of them turned out to be my grandmother. And so there are reasons the stories I heard the most were from this era. Because they are the origin stories of one iteration of the family. My mom and her three sisters loved to hear about their mom and dad falling in love. And these stories were great. They were glamorous and dramatic. 
Dad and the Studebaker and Mom's broken finger are good stories. But the club stories were the day the bear got loose, Dad's two girlfriends, the night the Russian midgets got stuck in the snow, the night the Great Dane danced with the stick-up man, the night my grandmother climbed up the ladder where my grandfather stood hanging the star on the Christmas tree by the coat check and surprised them with their first kiss, or the day they piled into the back seat of the bartender's car on the way back from the beach. She sat on my grandfather's lap, and he held her hand, and she had never noticed her hand was so small, and she knew that she loved him. I heard that story a hundred times, the last time I was holding her hand, and it was so small. While my grandfather lay dying in an adjustable bed at Rhode Island Hospital, not long before I moved into the house. The House of Stories was also a house of stuff. 80-something years of stuff, packed into closets and crawl spaces, and crumbling cardboard boxes stacked in locked rooms. Cigarette cases and tie pins and Bakelite clocks and roller skate keys, all of it. My mom and her sisters, no longer needing to ask their parents' permission to poke around in the basement, would send me on missions. One of them would call me up and say stuff like, there's this big Coke sign, I think, from when Uncle Leo ran the concession stand in Narragansett in the 50s. It would look amazing over my new stove. And I'd go digging. But there was one artifact they all wanted more than any other. The holy grail of family objects was a record. They said the Club Baghdad had a record-pressing machine. It was a small device that would actually carve a recording onto an acetate disc. They had this promotion for a while at the club where you could pay a buck and then sing with the band and take the record home, like karaoke or something. So somewhere in the house, they all swore, was a recording of the floor show at the Baghdad. If I could find it, they could hear the club Baghdad, hear Dad sing, hear the comedy bits he'd written, hear him introduce the showgirls, picture their mother high-kicking in the middle of the line. I just had to keep digging. I lived in the house for seven years. Every now and then the sisters would check in and ask about the record. I'd tell them about the other stuff I'd found. Wonderful things from that golden era of the nightclub. Pictures of the chorus girls, of the dance floor, of the bear before he ran away. Menus, 35 cents for a boiler maker, a buck 10 for the Clams Casino. But no record. And they'd be disappointed. And I didn't care. Because I found letters, and diary entries, and pictures of my Nana's cousin Amy, the flapper, who opened up her world such that it was viable to become a showgirl. Okay to climb up a ladder and make the first move. I found union cards, and streetcar transfers, the ID bracelet from the trip to the hospital when they had the baby who never came home. The stuff of lives of raising kids, of doing the work of sustaining a marriage for 50 years after the kiss by the Christmas tree by the coat check. Of my grandfather putting a family on his back while working decades of double shifts as a steam fitter, putting pipes into buildings, building boilers. When he used to sing and tell jokes and juggle dates with showgirls. so his four daughters could go to college, so one of their sons could be talking to you now. I didn't find the record. I don't know if it ever existed. 
And so the sound of a night at the Club Baghdad is lost to history. And that is just the way these things go. But on the last day, literally on the last day that I lived in the house before I packed up my Saturn and drove out to LA, and before my family sold the house like six months later, I made a final dig. I found three things worth keeping. I found a photo taking of my grandparents on that same day on the beach, before the car ride and everything that followed. They are young and they are beautiful. I found another photo of a friend of theirs, a thin man with a thin mustache, also on the beach, clearly taken on that same day, holding a couple of apples in front of his groin like they're his balls. I find the combination of the two photos incredibly moving. And I found a stack of yellowed, crumbling papers. They were typewritten scripts that my grandfather wrote for the nightclub act. They're sketches, they're comedy bits. And they're not very funny, but I find them incredibly moving. And here, for what it's worth, I present one of those skits from the Club Baghdad, not performed since 1940, sometime around the day my grandfather held my grandmother's hand in his, and her hand was so small. Pal, do anything interesting this weekend? Oh boy, did I. <laughs> you don't say, did you go to that new picture down at the Odeon? No, but I saw quite a scene. That's so? Why don't you paint me a picture then? I spent the weekend at a nudist camp. What now? A nudist camp. Jaybirds, as far as the eye could see. They call it Nudie Valley. So, was it a fancy place? Like Vanderbilt Mansion. They had a butler. How could you tell they were butlers if they weren't wearing butler clothes? Well, I could tell he wasn't a maid. Ho! <laughs> there was a big masquerade ball. I saw this old gal there. Had the varicose veins all over her body. What was she dressed as? A road map. It was true. Look at, her, look at her up close and you see the whole Tennessee Valley Authority mapped in her veins. So, tell me, did you see any nice-looking girls? Did I ever? I saw this one girl all in blue. I asked, what are you? She said, freezing. Oh. So, did you have a costume? I wore red. I thought it was a nudist camp. It was a rash. Oh. How'd you get the rash? There's a row of hedges that separate the men from the women. Some of us fellas were taking a look-see when the cops came and kicked us out. Why'd they go and do that? Too much beating around the bush. Oh! <laughs> 